the word cure comes up here and there for conditions that, that we don't have cures for. Other treatments involve magnets or light. They sound quite technological. They involve complicated devices. But again, the research evidence is really weak and controversial and at times contradictory. I'm Greg Rennie. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome to our show. Mind Body Matters is a podcast where we provide you some information and opinion about issues of the mind and body, our physical and mental wellness. Rob is away this week. Uh, he won't be on the episode, so it's just me. Often we interview healthcare professionals who can provide us some insight into the mind and body. Somebody we had on a previous episode, Dr. Robert Shepard, he's a really a accomplished guy. He, he talked to us about painkillers and big pharma last time. He's a researcher and very knowledgeable about neuroscience, and that's the study of the brain. This is how the whole thing started. Uh, he sent me an email a while ago about books he recently read and found the research in them, the case studies or documentation of a success or a critique of somebody else's research, that these books describe bogus treatment, like fake treatment, like you, you can teach your brain to restructure as a cure for an illness. So he wrote a blog, and he got a lot of reaction uh, to this, and he specifically went into great depth about this program for kids with learning disabilities that uses fake science to convince a layman like me to buy into what they're saying about their treatment for learning disabilities, that it's backed by scientific proof, and he says there is no proof. How do we know what is credible? Like, if we're not a psychologist or psychiatrist, how do we know what's real and what isn't? It seems like they're deep-faking research now. Parents are going to like this episode. Reading the email from Robert, he wrote about how parents with a child with a learning disability are being told wrong information, dangerous information, and questionable methods of treating it. And I, even I found this disturbing. Parents are being misled here. And I guess as they say, if it's too good to be true, it's probably BS. Well, we're going to chat with Dr. Robert Shepard again. As I said, he has a lot of credibility. He's a psychology consultant. He's worked in medical clinics and in private practice. He's a speaker at conferences and spent over 20 years in research and development of psychological assessments and has studied the neuroscience behind mental health issues and addiction. I hope you like the conversation and gain some insight. Hopefully it's helpful. You get a little bit of information about the pseudoscience that's out there, the fake science. Back for his second interview, here's Dr. Robert Shepard. So cool to have yeah. you back. The email that you sent me was captivating. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked a bit about it uh, uh, on the phone. And I, I'm, I'm interested to know, years ago, it would be pretty tough to publish and get information out there for the average person because it would use what they call the scientific method to be validated. And as you're saying here, uh, as time went on, there is opportunities for people to publish without really good backing. What information is out there right now about the brain-body connection? Because you mentioned that. And is that the same as mind and body, right? The, the basis mm -hmm. for our, our podcast. Yeah. 
Yeah, the the big push right now is is to couch everything in neuroscience terms. So that seems to be That's pretty flashy to say that, right? It's it's very flashy and uh and you know, I uh I used to to joke to people that uh you know, that neuroscience was kind of like rocket science. Um <laughs> and and the challenge was to make it just sound like to put it into plain language for people. But the fact is that neuroscience is is still a bit rocket science-y <laughs> and, and kind of like at the level of SpaceX where half the time things blow up. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's really in its infancy. It's, right. a, it's a very complex field. Um, it does have a history, but most of the history is back in neuroscience, in neuropsychology, actually. Um, if you go back in neuroscience, it starts with uh, often Russian uh, theorists who were studying the brain in a very practical way. They were looking at people carrying out tasks for one way to do it was just to get people to do things. So they'd get people to do really routine things like putting pegs in a hole or, or looking at images on a screen. And they would they would learn based on injuries that people had had, head injuries that people had how different parts of the brain were involved in those tasks. And, and through very meticulous study, very painstaking study of very minute, detailed uh, tasks, they were able to come up with various tests to assess brain function. And for, for decades, that was neuroscience, really. It, there was study it came from psychology. Yeah. yeah, it came from psychology. A lot, the other side was much more biological and was preoccupied with medications and neurotransmitters and such. Things really changed when imaging uh, came into its, 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 its newer forms with uh, the, the ability to watch the brain in action, generally by blood flow, right? So a, a functional MRI, you're actually watching, you're not really watching the neurons themselves, you're seeing where the blood's going in the brain. But because all the parts of the brain require blood to function, and because those minute capillaries go right down to the cellular level, you can see a very detailed uh, account of activity, essentially. Because where the blood goes, that's where the business is happening. Would that be a connection between brain and body there? Right off, yes. Uh, there's a kind of... Well, there's there's so many connections. It's it's pretty fascinating. Um, it is. E- even offhand ones that I had never really thought about too deeply. Um, my wife was trying to help me with some of my research, and I asked her to look into neurotransmitters and and some of the medications, and and she got totally wrapped up in this and started looking into it. And and uh, what she got out of it, and what she taught me in the process was that, um, for example, neurotransmitters. There's just a handful of neurotransmitters. These are chemicals that are used in the brain to help neurons, the cells of the brain, communicate with one another. And uh, rather than being thousands of them, there's actually just maybe dozens of, of neurotransmitters. Really? I didn't Relatively know few. But what huh. I hadn't understood and where this brain-body connection comes in is they're also used throughout the body. They're not just in our brain. So 
So when you hear about these great medications, for example, for depression that influence the production of serotonin, for example, well, A, that's really not news. We've known that for a long time. But B, serotonin's all through the body. It's in our gut. It's, it's, it's used by many different organs and cells in our body, which, which is like, whoa. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the way to understand how widespread serotonin is, is if you have the, the fortune or misfortune of taking an antidepressant and get side effects, you will have learned about what other part of the body serotonin is used for. So, for example, in antidepressants, people will sometimes have GI problems with their gut. Well, lo and behold, there's a lot of ser- serotonins produced in our gut. So, uh, so it's no surprise that when I take a medication that influences serotonin levels, I might get some nausea or some stomach discomfort or change in my bowel habits. So it's uh, so yeah, neuroscience is it's it's a lot more complicated, and this is you know getting at why I really got interested in this. I'm trying to research as, you know, my pet project was to come up with this assessment system that I could, you know, get a handle on my clients and understand their problems in a way that was meaningful to them and me and didn't just fall into jargon, but that related to the way the brain functioned and what effective treatments would work for them. But as I started plunging into this, I, I discovered that the brain science was actually a lot more fishy than I had ever suspected. Um, even the good research wasn't particularly great, um, but there was a lot of bad stuff out there. And in the popular, what do you mean by bad stuff? Bad stuff meaning, well, if I were to talk about it two ways, one way would talk about it from an academic point of view. So when I conduct a study, I'm I'm purportedly trying to do a really unbiased, good scientific study, but scientists are human beings. So like anyone, they, they want to win when <laughs> you've got a grant and you've got all this money and you've got a theory that you're trying to propose, your, your whole career rests on this. You, you want to design the study to try to hedge your bets and make sure that you get the result you want. Um, so this whole idea of an unbiased, you know, research is kind of malarkey, you know, we're all, we all got skin in the game. Um, so what I discovered was that a lot of uh, neuroscience studies fell into the same traps that most other research does, where they would use uh, control groups that weren't really comparable. They would use, they would use uh, methods that weren't very standardized. So if one person did the study and someone else did it, they might not even be, they might be comparing apples to oranges. And then an added problem was that I noticed that in when you're watching the brain and what happens in the brain, the same, um, the same brain activity can be observed for very different behaviors and different thoughts. So you can, you can assume that you're seeing uh, something in the brain going on that directly relates to what you just did with your experimental subject. When in fact, there could have been three or four other things you might have done that would have got the same result. Completely different things that you could have done. And then there's just some a, a, a quirk of neuroscience research is it's really expensive to put people into an fMRI. It's, it's, they're, they're expensive machines, right? They 
hospitals have to fundraise in the community for them. You know, they they cost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. This is a different thing from what people may use as an MRI at the hospital. This is it's high tech imagery. It's it's very expensive to run. So when you do a study, there's this temptation to try to get as much as you can out of it as possible. So what I noticed was there were studies, particularly in some in bigger universities where they were running fMRI studies and they would run, there would be a huge team and they would be extracting more than one study at a time out of the same data. So essentially, they might be conducting three or four different studies. They would divide the data up among the researchers. So if I tracked, if I followed the, <laughs> followed, followed Waldo around, I could, I could see that the same MRI data was being used for maybe five or six different research studies. Is that ethical? It's, it's accepted in some respects, but it's bad science because what happens is, well, I could, I could put it in terms of gambling. Okay. If I'm going to play dice with you, right. Um, there are certain odds that play into hand, right? So when I'm going to roll some dice, right. And I'm going to just roll the dice once and uh we're gonna bet on the numbers that come up but we're just doing one role but when you're doing six studies all at once you're you're not just doing one role you're doing six roles but you're telling people you're just doing one role because five of those roles you're dividing up <laughs> the data it's it's sort of a statistical thing and i'm trying to put it in lay terms but it's basically breaking some rules uh, some fundamental rules around I the see. probabilities. Okay. And that's happening quite a bit in the research. So, um, But then when you get into the popular press, when people start talking about this, who are trying to translate it for the average person and saying, well, Right, the media takes a, a research article that may not be validated or may not be totally backed mm-hmm. up, and the media goes, hey, we talked with a neuroscientist. And, yeah. well, no, and, and they're not is- a neuroscientist. And, and this is part of uh, the other part of is that self-promotion uh, researchers have to be influencers now. They, they want to get attention. It's really important. So they do media releases and such. And, and yeah, you know, it's just part of your work. Yeah. You, you, you got to publish, you want, you need to get known. Um, you want to get citations and all of this. Um, but it means that then the public are starting to hear these really optimistic, uh, somewhat slanted, uh, summaries of the uh, reviews of the work. And very often, people never actually, of course, are going to go and look at the study. You're going to read the media release. The, the media are going off of a review of a review often. It's often three or four times removed. And then you get somebody who decides to write a book about it. You You totally lose sight of the fact that the poor researcher is they're not trying to con people. They're just trying to do research, but they have a lot of limitations and their research is, is often very basic and the findings are really not quite as exciting as we would like. But when you're writing a book, you're going to make it sound really sweet and really powerful. And it's neuroscience. It's the brain. And it's this brain-body connection. There's just something really sexy about it. You know, we all, we all get... T- turned on by that idea that we can, you know, that we can, this power, well, heck, Elon Musk is saying that we're going to be able to put a chip in our brain, you know, it's like, 
whoa, this is this is really cool. But it's also, you know, Elon Musk, he reads a lot of sci-fi. He's a, he's a And chances are that chip is directly connecting you to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and his account. Yep, yep. His yep, verified uh, account. <laughs> yep, yep. That that's the real concern. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if, if Elon can do that, I, he, he deserves a Nobel prize. That's for sure. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about a book in particular that, that you, you brought to my attention and also a, um, a a program for kids uh, with learning difficulties. And it sounds like totally different things, but they're kind of tied in. Let's talk about Norman Deutsch's book, The Brain That Heals Itself. And how, how did you come across the book? And when did you start seeing some red flags in there? Fascinating reading, case studies. And the, the, Deutsch is a psychiatrist. And psychiatrists, I have learned working with them that they really like case, they really like case studies. There's very often critiques of research. There's no evidence of any of that discussion. In, in a book like this. Uh, what was the basis of the book? What was he trying to say? He was trying to say, well, A, that there's this thing, this new discovery of neuroplasticity, uh, that the brain uh, is capable of doing things that, that are amazing and even miraculous, that it can change, uh, that if, even if it's injured or damaged, that it can recover and uh, and recover quite remarkably well, and that you can teach yourself how to heal various conditions um, using heal techniques. the conditions in in what way? Well, for example, in Parkinson's disease, he espouses a treatment that involved a kind of a walking therapy. Um, so you would engage in certain exercises um, in that therapy. But the research behind that is really terrible and weak. Uh, but it's presented as compelling and much stronger than is actually the case. Uh, and the potential for change is exaggerated. And the, the word cure comes up here and there um, for, for conditions that, are, that we don't have cures for. Uh, and um, other treatments involve... Uh, magnets or light, uh, and it sounds they sound quite techno- technological. You know, you're, they involve compl- complicated devices, but again, the research evidence is is really weak uh, and and controversial, and at times contradictory for many of these techniques. We're not knocking this book in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that you use both this and the other program we're going to talk about as examples of misinformation that's out there, because what you're doing, it, you're reading it from the lens of your experience. Like, what was it like reading this through your lens? And how do you think the average person without that background as a reader would interpret it? I think um, my concern is that we make a mountain out of a molehill, yeah, in some respects. So, for example, just at the starting gate, that neuroplasticity is some great new discovery and that it's a real game changer is just baloney. We've known forever that people can make remarkable recoveries from injury, whether it's physical or mental. Uh, 
whether it's a brain injury or a bodily injury, when people uh, apply themselves and carry out some basic therapeutic activities, they can make remarkable steps to recover uh, in many cases. That's neuroplasticity. Uh, It's the body's effort to heal itself. Uh, But there are limits to that. We all know that in terms of our bodily injuries. Anybody who's getting to be my age knows that some things you can do so much about, but there's an aging process and there's a disease process and you ain't going to stop that train. Uh, And the brain is no different in that respect. Earlier I mentioned, I knew a little bit about neuroplasticity. Um, What I understand, tell me if I have this wrong, because this is where my lens went a little bit foggy and I saw some red flags in, in, in the, watching some interviews with, with Norman Deutsch, is that I understand that it's about building new neural pathways, meaning that uh, the neurons in the brain you know, that we, we rely on to communicate information from one neuron to another, that you can build new neural pathways, but I never had the understanding that you could build new brain structure. And I kind of feel that this is what a lot of this information is trying to say. Am I wrong? Well, it sounds like, wow, I'm just going to create all these new pathways and new branches. It ain't that simple. There are some fundamental structures to the brain that are pretty set in terms of how it's set up. There generally are only a few really good routes and, uh, and only a few ways to get the job done. And so there are some, some options, but there's, there's quite a bit of work involved, A, to make those changes. And we all know anyone who's done any rehab in terms of their brain function understands there's, it's a lot of work. It's, very, it's tough work very often, and it's persistence and over a long period of time. We're talking neurons, which grow very slowly. So we're talking... So the behavior um, would have to be repeated over and over. Over and over, yeah. And with, very often, with some limited results. But you know, something's better than nothing. And uh, again, a lot of, there are a lot of programs, rehab programs for, for the brain in particular that have been worked out that are, that are effective to some extent. But, but like treatments I do in my um, counseling, it's not as great and effective as some people expect. So for example, I'm treating depression. Uh, we're hoping to see a remission of symptoms by maybe a half, you know, and that's a really good result. The person's not going to be kicking up their heels and become an optimist. Like that's not how therapy works. People get better, but they don't necessarily get good. They get better. And, and not necessarily have, cured, as a lot of yeah. these guys are saying, eh? Yeah, but as as many people will as uh, will will vouch for, anything's better than what I'm been having to put up with. But when it comes to saying that I'm going to cure you, or that you're not going to have any symptoms, or that you're going to be even better than you were before, that's where I really think we need to exercise some caution. Some of these guys are claiming. And it goes back to what I was mentioning before about brain structure. I, I, I think it's a leap on the limited information that I know of that. Yeah, we, we've known for a long time that you can build new neural pathways in the brain. And, and you shared how difficult that is and mm-hmm. a, a repetitive behavior to get there. 
And what I'm hearing is about this changes the brain structure. Therefore, it's going to be beneficial for Parkinson's. It's going to be beneficial for autism. And I, I, I don't get the change in brain structure. How, how do we change our brain structure? Yeah, well, for example, autism, we don't even understand the process behind autism. So, so to even suggest that we can do some kind of structural change, we actually haven't even got our handle on the diagnosis of autism. It's this pretty broad spectrum right now in terms of how you define that. There's, there's a wide range of issues that fall under that category, so to speak. But then to suggest that there's some kind of structural change, it's, it's just it's childish, really, to, in, to, to think that it could be that simple. But the average person wouldn't, wouldn't know this, right? So they're reading this through their lens. They're going, hey, this changes brain structure. That, that sounds great. They, yeah, they just would accept it. And it fosters false hopes. In terms False of, hopes, wow, yeah. That's the wow, sad thing. I, yeah. I'm just going to be with without this, you know, we're going to overcome this. Uh, the other example you cite is Parkinson's, which it's a, it's a disease process that we do not have a cure for. We have, we have many treatments, many effective treatments that can help person cope with symptoms of Parkinson's. Almost miraculous effects in terms of the short term. They can forestall a lot of the the problems that go with the condition, but only forestalling. And the idea that I can do some kind of exercise to reverse that process is, is, is ridiculous. Certainly in case studies, probably yes, because there are some people who are misdiagnosed, don't even have Parkinson's, who get miraculously cured, um, or have a, a variation of other neurological condition that has many of the same symptoms but uh, has a different pathway, or that have Parkinson's-like symptoms that are the result of some other issue in terms of their diet or another problem in their body that is corrected, uh, and then they can improve, and so on. But for someone with an accurate diagnosis of Parkinson's, come on, there are a lot of doctors in North America and around the world who are quite capable of making that diagnosis and know darn well where that's going to lead. We understand it very well. And mm -hmm. we know that going for a walk is absolutely helpful. Exercise is absolutely helpful to slowing the process. Uh, but to reversing it, that's not in the cards. Uh, so we're talking about reversing illnesses like Parkinson's. Let's talk about learning difficulties. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of parents are going on the internet and they're reading books about how they can help their child that has learning difficulties. And you brought to my attention, never heard of the program before, but the Aerosmith program. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about that and where it kind of connects with Deutsch. I was new to the whole Aerosmith thing myself until a, a reader uh, contacted me and said, you know, I, I saw what you, you, I had written a brief article on, on the brain that heals itself. And right. And uh, so this uh, guy wrote me and said, uh, you know, I'd, I've been dealing with some clients who are involved in this Aerosmith program. And as I read your article, I thought, gee, I, I'd like to know what your opinion is on this. So I thought, well, I'll do you a favor. I'll have a look. Well, it, it ended up being becoming a, a whole other thing because uh, as I got into it, I thought, wow, this is like deja vu. I, I think I've been here before. Um, and not surprisingly, uh, when I read uh, 
Barbara Aerosmith's book, you know, she it has a it has a little promotion by by who other than Norman Mr. Deutsch. So um, they're kind of promoting each other. Um, yeah. So she she claims to have have had a uh, really profound uh, learning disabilities as a child. Very profound. Who's she? Just so that the listeners know. Uh, we're talking about Barbara Aerosmith. She was a uh, a woman who, uh, when she got started in her career, was an early childhood education uh, worker in a clinic at the University of Guelph, uh, which had a, uh, uh, a lab kind of daycare setting. So uh, the daycare at the university um, often would do research studies on the kids because... <laughs> When you're at a university and you've got kids, you put them in the daycare and you sign the thing, and you know it's it's generally just the way things are done. You're having fun, and your kids are going to be fine. And if anything, they get more attention than kids in other daycares. But uh, but uh, she she claims that she uh, she had essentially cured herself of this learning disability by engaging in some sort of neural psych type exercises um, and that she was inspired by um, a Russian uh, neuropsychologist, uh, Luria, Alexander Luria, who's just the the founder of neuropsychology, one of the greats, and who I think would roll in his grave if he he saw saw what was being done. So she was working with um, uh, a scientist, a researcher that had a lot of credibility, and you feel that he oh, no, knew his even, stuff, right? Not, not, not even working with. Um, this is the this is one of the trademarks of often of these of of writers who are in this creed. They 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 describe uh, if you describe yourself as being um, really strongly influenced by someone, it gives you an air of credibility. We we, we essentially have somebody here who was working in a daycare and uh, needed to kind of up their their credibility so they they talk about how they're inspired by a, a really famous person and you think wow but she just read his books if i guess <laughs> you know, didn't study um, him just read about him did, just read about him and, and read his stuff and and that inspired her and gave her some tremendous insights which is wonderful i think but it doesn't make you an expert in neuroscience to read uh, an expert in neurosciences book um and uh, and it doesn't make you an expert in neuroscience to work you know, in uh, in a in a place where some people are doing some studies when you're not even doing the studies yourself. You're just working there, right? It, it's just, um, but it gives you. But if you talk about it right and present it right, it sounds really in- incredible. And when you talk about your own case study and how you cured yourself, but who knows what the actual diagnosis, if there ever was a diagnosis was, and and who knows whether what you did was really what was responsible for the changes you saw. Um, but out of this, she came up with this experience of working in the daycare and, and reading Luria and dealing with her own problems. She came up with an elaborate system for treating kids with learning disabilities and, well, just about any kind of problem adhd learning disabilities it's it's also like not just learning disabilities but other things that kids are struggling with that parents are concerned about do you know as i read in the early part of the book she describes the kind of kids the kind of problems that that you might have that this program can treat 
you'd be hard pressed not to check at least half a dozen of the boxes any any person and that's a trademark of of a lot of dubious uh, treatments is when the, the diagnosis is really hard to pin down and when when you can relate to a number of the symptoms um, and in fact that that's a criticism of ADHD generally of attention uh, deficit hyperactivity disorder a lot of parents have concerns because if you look at the diagnosis a lot of kids share many of the symptoms and don't have ADHD they're just really uh, active kids uh, it, it's it's the way that those uh, different qualities combine together, and there's a minimum number of them that have to be active all at the same time. But when you're talking about a program that could apply to just about any kid, and then looking at the research, there there really isn't any. There's been a lot of poster present. Again, if you want to make your work sound really professional, you'll you'll cite your research. And in this case, uh, if you use poster presentations, you can say, you can publish the art, you can say, oh, these are the studies or these are the articles. But when I source the articles, they're, they're poster presentations. Well, I don't know about you, Greg, but when I, I, I like to go to conferences and I like to give talks at conferences and often I would submit a, a proposal. And uh, you, you basically have a couple of options when you submit a proposal to a to a scientific conference, you can be accepted to give a paper, which is a, a great honor because it suggests that your paper has some merit and they'd like other people to hear it. But it's not, it doesn't mean that your paper's a good one. It just means that it sounds interesting and that your peers might enjoy it. And if, if not, you might get a poster presentation, which means you, you get to put it on a piece of Bristol board and stick it on the wall so that oh, all see. the attendees at the conference can read it. And it really has no other criteria other than it gets you there and you have other to Other than a visual presentation? They're happy to get you at the conference because you, you have to pay <laughs> to go there. And, and in exchange, you get to put your poster on the wall and you get to tell people that you had a poster that you can, you can list it as a kind of citation. Well, she had a bunch of those. Um, but the data, really very little data no no proper placebo control no independent studies whatsoever of the method um using parents to advocate for the groups um just a lot of red flags in terms of a system she, and then, she had the parents um that they their kids were part of the program so he, she she had those parents go out and advocate in what way well if you're if you if you want to uh, make something popular um, well, more than that, if you want to make money off of something, you need to sell it to somebody and you need people to help you sell it to, to convince people to buy it. When it comes to kids in schools, the most effective avenue for that is to get the school board to adopt it. Well, what comes to mind is like, how can parents navigate through all of this information, not having the background that you have? But, you know, they want to make informed decisions about a program for their child who has learning disabilities. What do you recommend that they do to get to that point where they have enough information to make a good decision? Okay. Well, there's a number of things here. Just in a, in a general way, if you're reading a book, for example, one of the big red flags is when the word cure comes up or when, you'd start uh -huh. talk, when authors start talking about really remarkable outcomes, which, of course makes for a really interesting read and, and an inspiring book. But in, in the real world, 
cures don't exist in that sense for the most part, especially if it's something that uh, you as a parent or as a consumer have experienced a lot of failure with and understand that most people experience a lot of failure with, that there isn't an effective treatment for. When you start reading about someone telling you that they have a cure, that's a red flag right off the get-go. You got to watch out when somebody who's just a regular practitioner presents themselves as an expert. The best comparison I can use is there's been a change in the legal climate in over my career around uh, court appearances by psychologists, for example. And it used to be that any psychologist could decide he was an expert or she was an expert, and a lawyer could hire me, for example, and ask me to testify in court as an expert witness. It's, uh, but that created a huge problem in what was called the hired gun syndrome. I was going to say, they're paid to be there. So if, yeah. you know, <laughs> if, no, if, and it, if you're getting some money for it, then th- th- you might be biased. Uh, and in fact, you will be biased. Whether you think it, you will be or not, you will be biased. The research shows that it doesn't matter if you are, have the purest of intentions and, and really believe strongly in whatever it is if you're you know you're not an expert and you're going in there you more than likely will uh your your opinion will be demonstrably in favor of the person who's paying you and so the courts have in their wisdom have recognized that this is a big problem and they have set up requirements for what defines an expert i see okay and uh so now if i am a lawyer and i want to bring an expert in I need to start off the whole preamble with some demonstration of what this person's qualifications are. And, and assumedly, if it's in an area that is heavily researched, it's going to be a pretty good research background with a lot of publications, um, as an example. Um, so when a regular practitioner or, or someone who's not even a practitioner but a writer presents themselves as an expert, that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. And how, how could someone do what the legal system is doing in finding out, is this person really an expert? Do they really know what they're talking about? I guess a really practical one was ask your doctor. <laughs> if you want to get, you yeah. know, ask, ask some people what they're right. doing. Right. Um, but on a, on a practical level, look at the references. You know, look, are there any references uh, and any academic yeah, academic references. When someone's an expert, they use academic sources. So they use articles and look them up. You can get them on Google them on the internet and you'll find an academic article is something you don't understand. It's <laughs> like the title is totally gobbledygook and there's an abstract and you read halfway through it and you're like, I, I'm going to need some help with this. Like that's um, as opposed to another best-selling book or uh, uh, so, uh, but it's, it can be hard if you're not used to the, the whole realm of academia and expert and so on to recognize that. So it's a tough one and people misrepresent themselves. They will exaggerate their credentials, but, uh, but generally speaking, somebody who's a qualified practitioner for one thing, well, you know, and plenty of these writers are qualified practitioners, but that doesn't make you an expert. There's, there needs to be something above and beyond the fact that I'm a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a teacher. If you want to believe that I'm going to offer you a unique 
theory-driven model that has a validated effect that's going to change your life. I, I better be more than just a run-of-the-mill psychologist, you know. I mean, not that a run-of-the-mill psychologist is anything short, but uh, but if I'm advocating and trying to convince you of doing something that you don't know from Adam, um, think twice. And don't ever think that a case study is good for anything but entertainment. Going and talking to a researcher again is really not uh, that's not research. I'm not a researcher if I go around talking to researchers, okay? To say that I'm an, ex- you know, I'm an expert because I've talked to a lot of experts, that's not an expert. I'm a writer. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's something. Am I actually doing the research myself? Can I cite you some good studies? Are there other people researching my area? Because that's another really easy way to find out. If you look at a number of the practitioners in Deutsch's book or or many of these popular books, you'll discover that the particular therapy is uh, really limited in terms of its research to one or two practitioners uh, that are, they have their skin in the game, essentially, that they're self-promoting. The other way to know that it's a problem is to look for critical evidence. criticism. And in this modern information age, it's actually really important. If you can't find criticism, that's a big red flag. In what way? Well, in this modern age, it's, there are a number of techniques for anyone who's savvy on the internet. There are a number of techniques to suppress critical reviews and critical articles to bury it, essentially. Really? Wow. So someone who's good at this Um, and is more of a promoter, self-promoter, can engage in a number of activities on the internet, a number of tactics that will essentially bury the criticism on Google, for example, so that it'll be a dozen pages down. You'll never get to it. Um, And they do it by various techniques, uh, um, mainly to create false trails to their own data and their own articles. And they flood the internet with their own stuff. And, and also sponsoring, of course. Uh, sponsored links are always suspect. If you, if you are looking at a technique, and this is probably the easiest way, actually, Greg, to spot something that's really fishy, is if you Google it and the first thing you see is a sponsored link, you better Where it be says there. ad at the top? Where it says sponsored. Oh, sponsored, I see. Okay, right. Yeah. When you go on Google, you'll see, it'll say sponsored. If you've Googled, you know, re, you know, review or how good is this therapy or uh, research validation, whatever, and you get a sponsored link, that's a big red flag. You should be getting a whole bunch of research articles. <laughs> if you want to really get into the research, um, I think the uh, best place to go would be, well, for one thing, Wikipedia, although it's, it has its problems, But also people can change that, the Wikipedia. Yeah, they can, but the people are changing it back at the same time. So at the very least, you'll see that there's some controversy. Okay, well, that's good. That's good, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pros and cons, right? Yeah, unless it's a a really out there technique that nobody's heard of, because I can create my own Wikipedia thing. And and, uh, if nobody even knows about it, they're not going to be trying to correct me, you know. But, But for the most part, 
if it's had a little bit of of uh, currency, then there'll be people monitoring and trying to correct and and moderate. If you Google, if persons using Google or a search engine generally use Google treatment guidelines and use the medical association for your jurisdiction. So for example, I live in Ontario, Canada. So I would, um, I would look up the Canadian Medical Association practice guidelines. And under those practice guidelines, I will find the very document you can find it on. Any consumer can access these things. You can find practice guidelines in any state in North America for your medical association, and it will summarize all of the validated research-backed treatments. It's basically the, the treatment guidelines are what doctors use to make their clinical decisions. It sounds like a good source, but I'm thinking about from the listener's standpoint, uh, how am I going to be able to read this scientific stuff? Uh, and that's and that's where my own my own nerdiness gets in the way because <laughs> <'Cause laughs> it, it sounds is, like you know what you're, no, what you're saying is it sounds like a very credible source and yeah. it, you know it's available anywhere in North America but how can the layperson kind of understand what's there? Well, then I guess we're down to you need to talk to your doctor. If you're finding that that's just too heady an approach, if you're finding that you're confused or that you're, and many, many people will be in this situation where they're not, they've never really looked at academic stuff. They've, they, by virtue of their path in life, it's just, that's just Greek to them. And that's the case for the majority of people. You have a trusted physician, a qualified health professional to ask them their opinion. Ask them what they, are they aware of this particular treatment? Are they aware of the evidence for or against this treatment? And would they be able to help you understand that? And then the, probably the, the golden question you can ask your doctor uh, or therapist is, if you were in my position, what would you do? That's one. That Great question. Gets, that's one that gets turned on my wife, and I've heard a number of different specialists. Your wife's say, a doctor, right? Yeah. My wife's a doctor, um, and uh, many doctors I've talked to. That's the question that they resonate most to, and that often I've, when I've used it with doctors, you'll see a change because now you're asking something from a whole different angle, and um, and you might you'll get a you'll get the answer that an answer that will be helpful. You may not hear what you want to hear, but at the very least, you'll be getting uh, some credible advice and hopefully in terms you can understand. And I'm sure this would also apply to someone's pediatrician as well regarding what we were talking about regarding learning difficulties. Ask your pediatrician. Have you heard of this book? Absolutely. Uh, When it comes to children, so if we're talking about learning disabilities, you, you yeah, ask a pediatrician because they're hearing about this day in and day out in their work. And again, and they're the ones reading the practice guidelines and trying to apply those in their daily work. So trusted sources, and it's tricky in, the, in this day and age, it is tricky to, to find trusted sources. And, but there's a point where we need to be looking at, at the people that uh, are most accessible to us. The education system, we can we can go there, ask teachers, for example, what how they feel about it. 
Now, teachers are like the rest of us. They're also prone to being influenced by by ideas that, and they're they're not necessarily up to date. But again, it's well get to cognitive behavioral therapy. One of the best ways to test out our personal beliefs and assumptions is to do a poll, and it's a, it's a cognitive technique to say, hey, you know, you're a little doubtful. I've been working with you. I can see that you're a little questionable about changing your attitude about this. Why don't you go out and ask a bunch of people you really respect? Give them the situation. Ask them what they would do, and then see what happens. See what you get. See how the poll comes out. And nine times out of ten. Well, that's what people will confirm what they need to hear. So, I'd love to get into a discussion about assessments in general, mm-hmm. um, especially mental health as- assessments. And I think maybe we'll put a pin in that and come back to that in a, in another episode. But on that topic of assessment, you mentioned when they're assessing a child for ADHD, sometimes they're diagnosed, but really they just have some of the symptoms. What should a parent or anybody ask their assessor? Meaning, you know, if a doctor's assessing for for a diagnosis, if a psychiatrist or psychologist is assessing for a diagnosis, what what should they be asking to make sure that the diagnosis is solid? Okay. So one question to ask is, what more do you need to know? When we're talking to a health professional, they will ask questions. We will want them to know information, but life's practical. Time is precious. Everybody's wanting to get to the end of the interview. It doesn't hurt just to do an open-ended question. Is there anything else you need to know to help me understand what's wrong, what's going on with my child? You can ask also, is there anything else that might be going on? That's a very commonplace, plain language way of saying, in technical terms, it would be saying, what's the differential, is what a doctor would say to another doctor. What's the differential here? Which means, what is the differential diagnosis? What are the other possible diagnoses, and what makes this diagnosis compelling over those other possibilities? So if I was a parent, and I'm wondering about ADHD, then I I would ask that question, to to see if there's similarities in another diagnosis and, and what challenge the doctor on that? Or what would you recommend? More to understand the doctor's thinking process because that can help give us confidence. So, so I'll give an example that just happened to me. I was in a, 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 a new grandson with some, um, but some issues that had us in neonatal ICU. Okay, so very stressful, right? And we're wondering what's going on here. And uh, the doctors were being a little withholding of information, just telling us the bare basics of what their concerns were. So we needed to ask, you know, is there anything else that might be going on, which allowed us to get into their conjecture of, well, there were a couple of conditions that they wanted to rule out. They didn't want to worry us, that that uh, they didn't want to have us fearful that this was the diagnosis but they needed to get a little more information to realize. It just helped us to understand what was going on, to, to know that, um, and uh, to understand what the most likely diagnosis was, for example. Um, you can ask your doctor what the evidence is. Um, That's a great question. Right? It's just, it's a very 
practical, pretty upfront question. But maybe some people feel they can't ask that question of their doctor, but that's a really good question. Yeah. And, you know, and it depends on the doctor, how receptive they'll be to that or how, how equipped they'll be to answer you. Because um, surprise, uh, uh, some practitioners aren't really key, but most practitioners are doing continuing education all the time and they're following practice guidelines. So they'll be able to give you. So they have to be up on this information. We don't necessarily have to be our own they, researcher for our kids, but, but they uh, should doctors, be. part of the whole thing is that they're, they're quite knowledgeable about current yeah, they should be up on the evidence. What's your level of certainty on this? Right. Another fairly general question, but it's some. sometimes you'll get an answer that, again, might be helpful in terms of if your doctor says to you, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 90% certain on this. Well, it's pretty good. It's not perfect, but versus, well, I'm kind of 60% on this. It's still a bit of, un, you know, it, that, can, that can help. Um, and then, of course, as I said earlier, what would you do if you were in my position? Right. Um, so, so that's yeah. There, there, there are some suggestions uh, with a diagnosis. Just remembering that it's a it's a process of ruling out as much as it is of ruling in. And often, your doctor is not going to give you all the possible things that they're ruling out if only just for your peace of mind, because a lot of them are long shots, but they will want to rule them. Um, so they aren't necessarily going to disclose that in a conversation because it has the potential to do more harm than good to, you know, to tell you that, that one of the differentials he has is AIDS only because there's some vague statistical chance, you know, and that the, the, the blood work will clear up tomorrow um, is, is just not going to be helpful, you know. Um, but, if, uh, but if you want to know, uh, you, can, you can always ask your, a special a pediatrician or your doctor or psychiatrist if it's a mental health issue. I don't want to take up a lot of your time, but a question comes up uh, based on the information that you're talking about, what you should be asking your doctor. How do you feel about getting a second opinion? Does that help or would that, does that confuse things where you may have two opinions that are opposing? Uh, what do you think? I think, uh, I think everybody has a right to a second opinion. Uh, and if we're, if we can, if we hope to assume, if we hope to aspire to a world where there's, where there's validation and, and evidence-based treatments, then experts should agree for the most part, uh, will agree for the most part, to have some confidence in that system. And that if your doctor doesn't have confidence in that system, then perhaps they don't have confidence in their judgment is more the issue. In my experience, uh, a, a responsible doctor will be more than happy to provide you with that referral. That's That's just the way it is now, whether it'll clarify things for you, it depends on the level of certainty in terms of the situation. And it depends on who you choose. <laughs> I mean, we can decide to go to an advocate of the therapy that we, well, for example, in my community, for example, I am a therapist who, I'm a psychologist, and I work alongside doctors. And though I don't always agree with their prescribing decisions, I support 
their treatments with my clients. I don't try to talk them out of treatments that are validated, even though I may not do that treatment myself. Uh, but there are other practitioners in my community. There's well, one in my community that was uh, a staunch anti-medication practitioner. And if you were to go to him, you it's very predictable what he would say. So, so for example, if somebody came to me and I was quite sure that they had, uh, well, uh, bipolar illness and needed to be on uh, a mood stabilizer, um, and they weren't happy with that, which is often the case, <laughs> they would want a second opinion. I I would refer them to uh, a doctor or psychiatrist, but I wouldn't refer them to that particular individual. If they went to that individual knowing, having heard in the community that that person had a very uh, negative view of this system, they would get what they wanted, uh, may abandon the one effective treatment available to them. Not only is there misinformation and so many resources that we could look at to get information for our health. Uh, there's also a new thing. There's there, you mentioned about you could Google this, you could Google that, but with Chat GPT and that that's a totally different thing. And it would be another interesting episode to talk about regarding getting the right information. Right? Uh, does does the robots really know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wonderful thing about the world we live in. There's. There's just so much interesting stuff happening and, and right now, and we're living it. It's, it's pretty exciting. Well, once again, you, you always help us understand in simple terms, you know, some really important issues. As we mentioned, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. And uh, we thank you for coming on the show and explaining these things. And we hope to have you back soon. Thanks very much for your time today, Robert. You're welcome. It's been a delight talking to you. You know, this guy is fascinating. He, he, he provides this insight and then explains uh, it to us in, in simple terms. But, I mean, he's got that great voice too, right? He's got this calm voice. Uh, a lot of people uh, from the last episode mentioned that they, they really liked his voice. Um, wouldn't he be great as your psychologist? No kidding, eh? Well, again, he agreed to come in and provide us the truth about something in this case, about fake science and bogus treatments of Parkinson's and learning difficulties. We got to look for trusted sources. If you want to check out Robert on the other episode, the episode is called Painkillers and Big Pharma, the Marketing of Medication, especially if you've seen the series Painkiller or Pain Hustlers on Netflix, you'd really like the episode. I'm sure we'll have him on again. Maybe we can do like a Mr. Research Segment, or Robert Shepard, the Science Guy. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. And if you found this episode interesting and helpful, please give us five stars or a review on the platform that you're tuning in with. I hope to have Rob back for the next one. Meanwhile, be kind to yourself. Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends 